Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Metallica podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Metallica HQ, just slightly north of San Francisco. I'm afraid we can't tell you exactly where. Lars Ulrich. The only band I've ever wanted to be in is Metallica. James Hetfield. Let's have some fun and enjoy the moment. Kirk Hammett. I'll just sit there and keep on playing for fucking 24 hours if I need to, you know? <laughs> the Metallica Podcast. The Black Album. This is side one. See change. Well, I'm sitting here just trying to get into this frame of mind. I, the first thing that, that, that I'm thinking of is, is just, you know, when I think back to those couple years, the idea of thinking into the future was non-existent. I, I don't think any of us were equipped to really have sort of long-term projections about where is this going? What's it going to look like? You know, hard rock bands like the ones we loved, whether it was the Judas Priest or the Iron Maidens or the Saxons, or they weren't up there at that level, they were still, everybody was on the outer fringes of the mainstream of music because that was just the way music was at the time. I remember coming to America and being introduced to this word goals. What are your goals? What do you want to do? What are your goals? Blah, blah. Goals, goals, goals. I was just like, huh? What? It's like, my goal is to not have any goals and <laughs> just to get through the day and to hopefully have a better day today than yesterday and, and not as good as tomorrow, whatever. I get where you're going with it. Yeah, just to have fun in life and what's next, not thinking so much about the future. And yeah, I want to be a professional musician, but that's not what's in mind right now. It's like, let's have some fun and enjoy the moment. And yeah, there's no expectations. That's what I like about it. Yeah, I mean, for for me, when I, I first started playing guitar and I was a teenager and I wanted to start playing with other people and form a band, there wasn't a whole lot of people to uh, choose from. <laughs> in fact, I had to say, you are going to be the drummer. You're going to be the bass player. You're going to be the singer because I've been playing guitar for two weeks and let's get something together. <laughs> you know, but I mean, once that you find people and you start playing, I mean, you do definitely feel like some sort of like team or a gang or something like that. I mean, there's similarities in, in that. Yeah, Kirk, I, I, I relate with that, you know. Because on my peachy folder or drawings that I was doing, it's like, okay, there's four or five guys. In, it was always four guys in a band. And, you know, hey, which guy do you want to be? You're going to be that guy. I'm going to be that guy. It was like forming a group of just friends, really. And then music was kind of the next part, the next step. <laughs> and I remember back then, you know, where I grew up, it was kind of isolated. There wasn't a music scene in the town that I was in, which was Elsa Branty. And so, like, when I got together with these other uh, teenagers, we were winging it the whole time. We didn't know what to do. We plugged, what, three instruments and a mic into one amp that was borrowed from 
our high school music room and we blew it up. <laughs> Borrowed? We actually did borrow it. Yeah. <laughs> For good. Yeah. Well, we had to give it back and it was blown and we were we just didn't know what to do and neither did the people at the music room. Of course, there were a lot of hard times. There were a lot of crazy shit. And so we sit here and go, well, yeah, it was so cool to all of us hang out together. At the same time, there were other times where it was really fucking annoying. Kurt was saying the word gang, just hanging out. You know, I, I was sort of a... Grew up as an only child, uh, kind of a loner, not necessarily an outcast, not necessarily sort of a misfit, but just was spent a lot of time on my own, enjoyed being by myself, didn't have any obviously siblings. And so the idea for me of being in a band, playing music, sharing those experiences was a lot about brotherhood, was a lot about uh, the gang mentality, like Kirk is saying, that the collective, all that type of stuff. Thinking back to the, the very early times when when James and I started hanging out and then we subsequently came up here a year later and met Kirk. I mean, at its core, a sense of wanting to belong to something bigger and sharing experience and, and feeling the safety in numbers and just always like this thing about, you know, strength in numbers, you know, really just all of us together is, is better than being isolated and alone. Big Mick Hughes front of house engineer you know heavy metal when i started in 1984 it wasn't such a big movement that it was very underground you could just tell by the reactions of the kids you know they were driven it was it, i mean i'd work up for quite a few bands up to that point but i've never seen such an amount of drive for a band quite really passionate even in those days but it was only reflected from the guys in the band themselves it was more than just doing a gig. You know, you go for a lot of bands like, yeah, we're playing tonight. No, no, every gig we did, it, it, it's like it was something more than just a show. It was, I don't know, it was, <laughs> it was all encompassing. And it, it went, and people felt that, I think. Golden Gate Park, San Francisco. Ron Quintana, Bay Area DJ and Metalhead. Well, actually, 40 years ago in March, I ran into a guy up on a hill in the middle of Golden Gate Park. And that was the first time I met Lars. There we were, having a big old kegger playing Budgie and Motorhead on various tape deck devices. And yelling and screaming our lungs out so cops couldn't hear us because we were on the top of a island in the middle of Golden Gate Park at, in the middle of the night. And here comes this guy with funny patches on. So we all gathered around him and quizzed him about his knowledge of heavy metal. And he told us about bands we'd only heard whispers of. And we all bonded together over the love of the new wave of British heavy metal. Ron and I especially hit it off 
I think it was very close with Ron in the pre-Metallica days. We were just pals and like all 16, 17 year olds at that time, you sit around and dream big and live in a fantasy world of what if we were in a band? What if we had a magazine? What if we had a record store? What if we were doing this? What if we were doing that? Hello, Recycler Classifieds. This is Rhonda. Would you like to place an ad? I think the first thing to say is that there was probably more than one ad. It wasn't just one week and then James showed up and now we're sitting here 40 years later. It was over the course of maybe six, nine months, the Recycler Weekly kind of trade publication in LA, 7-Elevens and, and so on. A lot of cars, a lot of whatever stuff people were mattresses or whatever yeah. and there was a small a small section in the back and when i say small i mean comparatively to the six thousand cars people were selling but there was musicians looking for other musicians looking for bands bands looking for musicians and i put something in there drama looking for other people to form band influences iron maiden tigers pantang saxon diamond head angel witch something like that mm -hmm. and that ran often to very little <laughs> with very little fanfare and the phone rang occasionally I, mean, I was about to say did anyone else answer other than james well yeah i mean james is was quite a bit later but obviously you guys know lloyd grant yeah. uh, lloyd grant was early it was a guy uh brad parker was another guy early did he end up in black and blue oh that guy that's jeff Jeff. Jeff Warner. Right. Jeff Warner. No, Brad Warner. Parker was in our band for one show. Brad Parker was the singer. No, the, he was the guitar player. Okay. Another guitar player, because I wanted to just be the singer. That's right. Yeah, so That's he right. and he was the guy Jeff that Warner, yeah. jumped up on stage when they announced Metallica. <laughs> At 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, dude, we haven't even done a sound check. He's <laughs> yeah. up there. Let's go. Uh, yeah. He's still actually up there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, waiting. No. Uh, so... There was Jeff Warner, who Jeff Warner ended up in Black and Blue, and Brad Parker, Lloyd Grant, who ended up playing some of the solos on the very early stuff. Uh, him and I did some shenanigans. We played a Trespass song and a Diamond Head song. I actually have somewhere a version of of Lloyd and I doing It's Electric with <laughs> Lloyd playing the string instruments and singing and and me drumming and we did that song one of these days the trespass song uh -huh. the word heavy metal we never wanted labels from the beginning the word heavy metal was it it mostly got a bad rap so that's why we were kind of not wanting to be just lumped in with all that stuff you know, a lot, especially in the eighties, like, so it's all in the perception that was very clear, but being a part of something, we wanted that, you know, <laughs> okay. And we're a part of the heavy metal gang, you know, going up to strawberry Hill in San Francisco and headbanging, drinking beers to heavy metal bands from Europe that no one's ever heard of. And we bonded. My boy Lars goes back one time. Big Mick Hughes. James is he's a consummate musician james anytime james so he he's all about the music really and lars always adds his spin to that so there's like a whole 
cacophony of things that equal one outcome. I ended up in a couple of garages. I would throw my uh, Camco drums in the back of my mom's pacer. Remember the bubble cars? And then I would drive around. I'd show up, uh, you know, in somebody's garage and it'd be like, hey, how you doing? Hey, uh, play a YYZ or something. It'd be like, uh, okay. <laughs> how about playing some Angel Witch or something? I could barely mm. count to four in not just Danish, but in English also. <laughs> I just remember him and me being in a rented room for right. you know, a few minutes. When I first met James that time, you were very shy, didn't barely say much, uh, kind of kept to yourself. We jammed and the cymbals kept falling over and I hadn't washed in three months. I felt the connection with James. I basically called up James and, and we gave it a shot. And then we got together. Just like Lars, we're looking for the right chemistry. It was like, who can actually play? You know, who's dedicated to this as much as I am? Yeah, there were a few friendships that got tarnished by that drive to want to make it. And I remember some of my friends just saying, man, you're, you're an asshole. You just want to <laughs> make it. It's like, well, yeah, <laughs> who else doesn't? Uh, or who's that other guy that does? And Lars was that other guy. Everyone wants to be Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> Everyone is out there going, willy, willy, willy. Heavy blues from the 40s and 50s. You know, some of that Mississippi Delta stuff. Robert Johnson, that's heavy. You know, hellhound on my trail. That is heavy. I mean, it hits me like Black Sabbath does. You know, it hits me like Venom does. It's the songs, you know, absolutely. And for me and for my fellow band members, it's always been about growth. It's always been about looking forward. It's always about like trying something new and different. It's always been about experimentation. And it's always been about the dynamic of the four of us. And there's too many guitar players. Everyone is looking for a singer, so I just wanted to be a lead vocalist because it was a higher chance of me getting into a band at that point. And I told Lars that, yeah, I'm a singer now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get together and we'll find some guitar players. And the nucleus was kind of set right then. We all came from the same place musically. I was listening to the exact same stuff as Lars was. We were forming bands. You know, all of a sudden we had, you know, we had like three or four bands that sounded so unique. And then, you know, people started to flock to us and, and figure out what we were listening to. And then a scene formed. And that, that's how the Bay Area music scene started. I mean, the thrash metal scene started, basically. You know, Kirk, the riff guy, I mean, he comes up with some fantastic licks and whatever, you know, it's, and the calm kind of person. Kirk's a really calm guy, he's such a nice person. Everybody does bring elements to it, uh, absolutely they do. And it's such a, an eclectic bunch of elements. They all satisfy different things in different areas. I think that what we were doing felt so different from what everybody else was doing. What we were doing felt so left field to what was going on in mainstream music at the time. I knew that Lars was as dedicated as I was. Most of my other buddies were just hanging out and having fun. 
I didn't want to have to work at the sticker factory anymore, be a janitor anymore. I wanted to have music be my career. And that was all I knew. That's sort of the, the first year in, in 10 minutes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Metallica Podcast Volume 1, The Black Album. Side 1 continues. Now, back to Lars Ulrich. And so I said, fuck it, and I just finished school, and I went to Europe and followed Diamond Head around on tour in the UK, and then went back to Denmark uh, and hung out for a little while and made some money to get a money for an airplane ticket back to L.A., and then, again, long story short, when I came back, I spent the summer in Birmingham, spent a few weeks in Denmark, went back through England, saw Saxon and Riot, saw the heavy metal Holocaust with Ozzy and Motorhead and sort of spent some time around uh, going to gigs in England and then finally made it back to America maybe in September, three months later. And I'd been staying with Diamond Head and was all fired up. And these guys, I've seen them work and, and see them do their band thing. And, and I can do that. Ron Quintana. We were talking about starting a band, starting a record store, and we were throwing names around. And he showed me this list he had of Red Blitz, Red Vet. Blitzspear, various blitzes, because Blitzkrieg was really big right then. We were looking for names for our possible record store band hangout <laughs> club. I had a list like Skull Orchard, Metal Mania, Metallica, you know, a bunch of crappy names. And he said, oh, that's, that's a cool name. So a few months later, I started a little fanzine amongst the tape traders, as we all traded tapes, and I was starting to trade with Brian Slagle, and I just thought Metal Mania was the greatest name ever. So I put Metal Mania on it in August of 81, and took off from there, and a couple months later, I get a call from Mr. Lars, and uh, he wanted to use Metallica. And I said, that's cool, you should do it. Lars was so interesting because he had been around the world, <laughs> he had, been to Europe, which was like the mecca for heavy music. And he had all these experiences of traveling around and he had 
lived with another band who was doing exactly what we wanted to do. And he was absorbing all of that knowledge of how do you do this? Lars instantly had a little more of the business head than I did. And that was very attractive to me. Brian Slagle, founder, Metal Blade Records. In every respect, the way Metallica was, even in the very early days, he was certainly on the business front, the, the driving force to make things happen. James was really quiet and didn't really say a whole lot in the early days. I think the first two or three times I ever met James, he might have said five words. And certainly in the early days, it was Lars in terms of just get, making things happen. He was the guy that was doing all the business end of, of the band. The one thing that really impressed me in a, throughout his whole life, basically, is, and there's very few people that I know that are able to do this, very few people on the planet can. He puts his mind to do something, he will make it happen. And that's pretty amazing. He set his mind to a lot of crazy things. You're like, well, how is that possible? Next thing you know, it's happening. My mom was very sort of organized, practical. That's where I guess some of those traits that I brought, you know, the early years of, of just sort of being like the organizer. I don't feel it was ever a conscious decision. It was just something I fell into. It was something that I did, I guess, primarily because I had always taken care of myself. I'm an only child. And so when James and I started, and when we started Metallica, it, it was just a continuation of, I'll always just take care of myself and make sh my own shit happen. When James and I met, he certainly was not overly interested in a lot of the practical stuff, and it just sort of fell into my lap. It wasn't like, okay, you play guitar and I'll run to the post office. Lars is the, he's the business guy, really, I guess. He's the organizer, he's the thinking sort of guy, the planning guy, the, the, you know, his memory is second to none. I mean, that he can remember stuff, always never fails to amaze me. He remembers venues, dates, actual dates and days we played in places. Brian Slagle. I didn't see the very first Metallica show, but I did see the second Metallica show, which by some miracle, and this, I think, just goes to when Lars sets his mind to do something, it generally happens. They open for Saxon at the Whiskey. So it all comes full circle, right? In Europe, people would ask me about this new band Metallica, and just a few, because they, they only had like four song demo out. And But by the time I got back, they were the biggest thing in San Francisco in, in late 82. I finally got to see them live at the end of the year. Jason Newsted. Everybody has their spot in the band to make it do what it does and why it's gone as long as it has, because everybody is uh, maybe astute enough to realize their role and play it well. And mine was to be the live guy, lay down that concrete, and the business was still conducted by James and Lars as always and still to this day. So I was still pretty new in it at all. And considering the first part of the statement, the world was going at an accelerated rate for us, right? I was only in for a little bit at that time and I stepped on the locomotive in full tilt. At that time, obviously, 400 years ago and pre-Make Your Records at Home and pre-Indie and pre-Streaming uh, and all these things, you know, 
everything was just about a record, a record deal, a record label, a, a record was part of that gateway out of uh, what James is talking about, out of those day jobs. It, it and, was the goal. Yeah. Even if it was just one song on a record, that was the beginning of, that was the first domino. James had most of Hit the Lights from something that he'd been doing before and we got together, morphed that into something new, I think, very early on. There were a lot of versions of Hit the Lights. And subsequently, there were lots of versions of Metal Massacre with different versions of Hit the Lights. But that was sort of the beginning of it. Brian Slagle, uh, who obviously I had a relationship with and who was very into all the same stuff that I was into subsequently that James got into. And he was very driven also and had this whole thing about, I'm going to champion all the LA bands. I'm going to put a record out, the Metal Massacre album. And him and I were pals enough and jokingly one day it was like, ha ha. Brian Slagle. We were just both music fans. We were just fans at that point. No signs of doing anything. And... When he got me the original tape, because he delivered it the la very last minute, basically, to get it on the album. So I didn't hear it, but then I heard it, I go, oh, wow, this is actually not too bad at all. And it was kind of the same seeing them live. It was weird, though, because James did not play guitar at that point, and then James sang. But they were, they were pretty good. The first three albums were fairly easy because, okay, we had eight riffs, and they turned into eight songs. Okay, done. This is what we got. Okay, we all know the early shit, correct? Well, if you don't, you're going to fucking learn it tonight. So I'm going to keep my eye out and uh, like to see you guys singing along loud as fuck, okay? So uh, try and keep up with me, y'all. Adrenaline starts to flow. Thrashing all around. Acting like a maniac. By the time Justice for All came around, we were all a lot more schooled in our playing. We were a lot more confident in our playing. All of us, you know, guitars, drums, singing, everything. And we got a little more fancy. Lars Ulrich. Justice album was the culmination of the crazy progressive side of Metallica kind of being pushed almost up to a wall or as far as it could go. By the time Dyer's Eve was done, which is probably the craziest five minutes we've ever committed to vinyl. Yeah! Thank you so much, man. We'll see you around soon, I hope. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. 
Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout. When you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk nationwide at Costco. Or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. The Metallica Podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album. Side 1 continues. Now, back to Kirk Hammett. We had just gotten off the Injustice for All tour. And, you know, that was our first major arena tour. And, And at that point, we felt, all right, the stage is set. This is our arena tour. It can only get better from here. We'll be reaching more people than we ever have. We'll be uh, have opportunities to sell more albums than we ever have. That was, to me, those three records. It was like the mm. end of that era. And there was no place left to go after that. There was a definite sort of awareness that kind of came over us when we were touring in Justice for All. Over the summer, as we're touring everywhere in America, we ended up actually playing all 50 states. All those songs. I remember playing the song in Justice For All and literally like a good four or five minutes into it, seeing people start looking up at the rafters, you know, checking out other things other than the band. You know, people... That was the band. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, people kind of like looking at their watches, people yawning. And it was a good thing that we had an explosion at the end of the song because it kind of woke people up. I swear to God. They think that way. That that they believe that you have to be entertained. They want to give the best entertainment that they possibly can. We've always tried for that, to be honest with you. From my point of the audio, I've always tried to strive to make Metallica sound as big and bold as they possibly can ever be because that's what we've always done, you know. Being a normal-sounding rock band for Metallica doesn't work. They've got to be bigger and bolder than anything that's ever been around, you know. We want people to be absolutely in awe of what they're witnessing, really. I remember we would talk sometimes about playing these crazy eight-minute progressive songs and our minds drifting and feeling the audience drift. In in a live setup, it, it also had felt like it was kind of being pushed as far as it could go. They came to us saying, you know, the song's too long. That's what we heard a lot. 
this song is too long for a video, for radio, for the average music listener. This is too musical. It's too, it's too <laughs> much. Too, too much. It's too much yeah. for everybody. And if you wanted to reach some more ears and grow the family, maybe simplifying some stuff, not trying to be so fancy. There was a growing perception of just like, maybe we kind of overdid it. You know, maybe we put too much into it. I remember clearly in a hotel room two, three months after the Justice album had come out, hearing a couple songs and started to think, huh? Like, huh? What is going on here? What these songs are crazy, progressive, self-indulgent. This record sounds a little odd. It was the shortest to this day of whatever 10, 15 records Metallica has done, it definitely was the shortest honeymoon period before the questions started coming of, what are we thinking? What was going on? <laughs> Why yada, yada. did you do that? <laughs> right. <laughs> where's, so, where's the bass? Jason Newsted, Metallica bassist from 1986 to 2001. Lemmy sound in Metallica, like I tried to do on Justice, it didn't work. I didn't realize that I was trying to be more guitar-y. You know what I'm saying? The seeds for this transitional energy that, that started taking place in 1990 were sown really early on. That was a, the shortest honeymoon period still to this mm. day, 40 years later, of any Metallica record that I've been... Obviously so what does that mean to you? What is the honeymoon... Explain the honeymoon period. What does well, it mean? it's it's like... It's from the day you walk out of the studio going, we just made the best record ever uh, sitting in a hotel room going listening to a couple of songs i can't remember if it was on the radio i can't remember if we was we were approving an edit or maybe it was we around, were on the radio you know, whatever <laughs> approving a, a, a edit or the video something around the video or so, there mm. was something i just remember sitting there going like this is all sounds kind of <laughs> odd and start okay, really so your own realization the, yes. of did we do the right thing or yeah. you knew we did the right thing. Well, yeah, yeah, but, because I'm always proud of the fact that we did the right thing in the moment. I'm just right. saying when you start questioning or kind of going, what were we thinking? Mm. You know, so. Yeah, my honeymoon <laughs> period ended, I think, when Big Mick told me. Yeah, <laughs> it's like. Something's wrong with the stereo. You know, I remember. Something's wrong. I was there. The low it, end yeah. is not on the stereo we or playing, something. We were playing the songs for Big Mick and Jason and the bus. We were morning. so excited. We're like, check it out. Look what we've done. We've we've you know slept in a a car for the last thirty hours, and here it is. Da da da. And we put it on, and Big Mick's like, what is that? I remember Jason got up and walked out of the bus. <laughs> He was Poor. so pissed off. Oh. He literally got up and walked out of the bus, grumbling. Yeah. Poor Jason. But again, we did our best. And and I agree with you, Lars. We we did our best at the time. And overindulgent or not, yeah, the intention was was the vision was good. The, the vision was true to that moment, man. Yeah. I mean, I I hear it. I hear the criticisms. I hear the talks. I've seen it. I've read it. I understand it. But I know. I could look anybody in the eye. You know, when James and I were at Bearsville mixing this record, 
and you know the replacements were next door and uh drunk and Tom, fighting <laughs> right Thompson and Barbiero were there I mean we could do another whole hour or two Our videos finally being played on MTV. Everything was set for us for just like just continued success. Yeah, yeah. We loved that tour. Being on that tour was amazing for us because we really felt like, all right, we reached the level that we'd been striving for. And here we were. Our duty to like make the most of it, have the most fun, really, really like enjoy ourselves, play great music, you know? And so I think over the course of that tour, man, we just, just had so much fun as a band. I just remember the, it was us and Aerosmith in Toronto. It was a one-off and Cliff a manager came up from New York and I remember talking to him and basically sitting there and going, we got to start writing some new songs. We feel that maybe we're going to just try some different shit. Cliff Bernstein, Metallica manager, co-founder, Q Prime Artist Management. In 1991, we're sitting there knowing that album number five could be the really pivotal album in their whole career, a chance to reach many, many millions of fans around the world. Lars was already thinking about, let's try to make something that's going to surprise people after Justice. The super long songs, no bass, uh, you know, kind of garagey type of production. Why don't we do something else and surprise people? And I said, you know, that is, that's a great idea. And I just remember he just saying, you know, try, you know, we were kind of using the Misfits. Like the Misfits had all these like short songs, but they were still super hooky, super catchy vocals. Then James and I went back to San Francisco a week or two later and started going through these riff tapes trying to find the right ideas. You know, taking a chance, it didn't feel like taking a chance. Uh, and that's kind of easy to say now. It's a risk. If it feels a little uncomfortable, that's okay. I can lean into that. If someone is suggesting something, it's either going to work out or it's not going to work out. Simple as that. There's no wrong choice. It's just a different choice. It's not like, oh, this is, you know, this weird predicament of you know is it easier to write a short song than a long song I, I would say it's the opposite it's easier to write a long song uh, as a musician as a songwriter the hardest thing to do is to edit yourself and so I would say it's easier to throw the kitchen sink in there and always air on the longer side than it is to take parts out that you think are really good but maybe overindulging or overkill in terms of, of just attention span.
but the, the, the battle cry was shorter songs and, and simplify because there was just nothing else that we could do. And that was really kind of the, the mission mm -hmm. statement. So the creative risk with the Black Album, but back then it just felt like the next right thing to do. We had played out what we could on And Justice For All with our musical adventures and uh, overplaying and, and trying to show our craftsmanship, taking it to a different level, focusing it instead of a wide net. It was a little more focused, it feels like to me, a little thicker and deeper, more, I don't know, uh, more dense as, as, as how I like to think of the Black Album. You know, and the, I'm not talking about our intelligence, <laughs> even though there was some of that. Jason Newsted. The four of us as still gang mentality in those years, still wearing the same clothes, still being the same, still eating the same, drinking the same. We were a force just hanging out in a room. But certainly in those first five years, it was moving so fast. I just wanted to play that role of, dude, make sure you stay on top of the songs. When they ask you to be there, be early. You know, all that. Be professional. Be the best you can. I felt so fortunate about my opportunity that I wasn't going to let myself down or those around me down. I wanted to make sure to stay as strong as possible in my role. Jason and I were connecting at a different level, and, you know, there was obviously new vibes. Obviously, it was exciting because we were venturing into someplace unknown. But... The things that they do relate to that we love is the power, the power of it, the unity of the music, pounding nature of it. That's kind of what we chose to focus on after that. Brian Slagle. Every band grows and every band kind of changes the way they are. Just the artists, you're not gonna do make the same record over and over again. That's one thing that I've always loved about them is they're not afraid to make a record that they want to make. We always would say that Metallica had a name of a band. That's the name of our band because that's what you call our music. Uh, what is that? That's Metallica. Cliff Bernstein. I'm hearing great reports from the studio and I'm just waiting to hear what they've come up with. And, of course, then I hear it, and I know, ah, we did it. Great. Amazing. Breakthrough. So proud as I sit here and listen to everything we're talking about, and our music has never been a product. Our music has never been the easy way out. On side two of the Metallica podcast, volume one, The Black Album, Bob Rock sits in the producer's chair, and the band reacts. I was involved in maybe 30 or 40 albums. So you'd see how bands work, you see how producers work, you see how mu musicians react. So you just learn all that stuff. With Metallica, you know, the biggest thing on the Black Album is that's what I brought to them. It was like, okay, we're in a new neighborhood, we're in a new zip code. There's a sense of discovery here. We haven't been here before. It was exciting because we were venturing into someplace unknown. I just knew it was special because we had a big time producer. That was a whole new thing. Is this really, is this good? <laughs> Are we doing good? <laughs> it made sense to us, you know, it gave the album definitely a lot liver feel overall and that was something that bob rock suggested we do and we were like really out for it i definitely think that the songs got better and tighter that way 
that journey ended up being or like wow we're we're doing something different and that's really fresh and fun everybody bought the record because they were drawn into the songs not just riffs songs and lyrics and i think that's their finest moment in terms of that the metallica podcast volume 1 the black album Executive produced by Lex Friedman for Art 19 at Amazon Music. Produced by Lars Murray and Dennis Shire for Pop Cult. Story producers and writers Mike Metler and Catherine Turman. Mixing, sound design and editing Rob Spate. Showrunner and creative direction Dennis Shire. If you love what you've heard, give us a five-star review and share this podcast. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and ask your fellow Metallica fans to subscribe too. I'm Claire Sturgis. Hey Prime members, you can listen to the Metallica podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com/survey.